Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. So welcome to the show, everyone. On this round of DGMH, we are going to look at one of my favorite great minds, someone that I fell in love with during my days as a graduate student at Duquesne University, Charles II. Now, I'm not talking about that walking chin that was Carlos II of Spain. No, here I mean Old Rowley, the Merry Monarch, the Restoration King, Charles II of England. So, I should warn you, I love Charles II just about as much as a Habsburg loves their cousin. I studied Stuarts in grad school, and I always found myself drawn to the liveliness of Charles II's reign and court. As an educator, I have grown more and more fascinated with the English civil wars that dominated his father, Charles I's reign. But Charles, his wife, and his many mistresses will always have a special place in this history lover's heart. In many ways, he is remembered as England's Louis XIV. In many more ways, he was not. But in the end, it will be for you to decide whether or not Charles II was the best or worst of Stuarts all of which just kind of got by. And I have decided to bring back an old favorite for this episode, a Long Island iced tea. Why? For a couple of reasons, actually. And as always, some of you might already know what I'm thinking, but others will have to listen to try and figure it out. To give this one an extra bit of tea flavor, I used sweet tea vodka. And for this one, I was sure to use Pepsi, not Coke. But more on that later. As we examine the life and accomplishments of King Charles II, we must ask ourselves, was Charles a weak monarch that was forced to conform to those that gave him his throne, or was he a cunning pragmatist that masterfully ruled over England and Parliament? Now, I am going to structure this story of King Charles II not as some triumphant victory, but instead a tale of survival. In this tale, Charles was able to deliver three beautiful fuck-you moments. And in examining those, we may just find some greatness in our merriest of monarchs. So, let's get to it. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So the Stuarts are like a catastrophic shitshow of leaders that never seem to learn their lesson. Exemplars of an age-old saying, if we don't learn from our history, history is doomed to repeat itself. Well, they never learned, and more often than fucking not, they doomed themselves. Unlike the Tudors, who just did whatever the fuck they wanted to do, and pretty much got away with it, any time a Stuart tried to do something, it nearly cost them their head. Charles, however, may be the exception. Of course, we have already looked at some of the mild successes of King James I, his grandfather, that were tarnished with witch hunts, anti-tobacco idiocy, and divine right. But his son Charles I, that is a totally different story, and a story we must explore to fully understand his son, our subject for today, Charles II, as it may reveal to us a reason why he was possibly a success. Charles I is one of the most fascinating subjects in English history that ruled over one of the most dynamic periods in Britain's long past. He is often looked at for his failures, but I would say he is the closest England came to a successful absolute monarch in the early modern period, having achieved absolute power until his own religious stubbornness and idiocy got in the way. He was quite brilliant, always finding ways to operate without Parliament, but never realizing that he was royally pissing off his subjects. Perfect example, ship money in the case of John Hamden. Ship money was not a Charles exclusive. Elizabeth I had actually used this emergency tax before, applying it to coastal towns as the massive Spanish armada sailed towards England. 
Charles I, however, had not only called for the tax to be collected during peacetime, but extended it to all inland areas of his kingdom. This decision was dictated by rather simple logic. If coastal towns fall, all of England falls with it. So rightfully, everyone should pay the not-a-tax tax for the security of the greater good of the kingdom. Two problems. There was not an impending attack to defend against. Charles I just wanted money to run his kingdom without having to call Parliament to raise new taxes. And it fucking worked. Until, of course, it didn't. Charles was able to run his kingdom on ship money revenues for years. But then there's the other issue. His people were pissed. So one man, John Hamden, decided to protest the would-be tax by not paying it. Plot twist, he owed one pound. It wasn't the money, you see, that was making everyone so angry, it was the taxation without representation, which is so not a British thing, he said, as sarcastically as humanly fucking possible. End result, Hamden was arrested, tried, and Charles lost. This is just one example of the shady money policies of Charlie I that would cause a permanent rift between Parliament and King that would linger on through today's subject, Charlie II. But I must point out that Charles was not the sole reason for the outbreak of the English Civil Wars. The Bishop Wars, yeah, maybe, but not the Civil Wars. Parliament was demanding more and more consent to be governed. From the get-go, they never worked with Charles I the way they had worked with his father James. But Charles I's inability to properly gauge the situation would prove to be incredibly costly. My point in all this is to show one simple thing. Charles II would have a terrible task ahead of him, as he tried to rule over Parliament after his father's failures, and no failure was greater than both Charlie I and Charlie II's efforts in the English Civil Wars. So what are the English Civil Wars? I mean, we just covered the American Civil War, so we better cover these too. And I figured I would approach this long, chaotic nightmare in the same way that I did the American Civil War, as sarcastic as humanly possible. Oh, where to begin? Charles I becomes king in 1625. In just four short years, he fucks everything up. Parliament refuses to give him a lifetime guarantee of tonnage and poundage, and the showdown begins. Charles calls Parliament, dissolves it, does that like three more times. Charles then signs the Petition of Right. His good friend Buckingham is killed. He blames Parliament for it and dissolves it yet again. Eleven years of tyranny and two bishops' wars later, Charles needs to call a short Parliament, then dissolves it. And Charles still needs money. And for the first time in like forever, Scotland invades and defeats England. Charles calls Parliament, tries to arrest five members, and oops, all the birds have flown the fucking coop. Charles flees London for Nottingham, the shit has hit the fan, and all we have done so far is cause a civil war. So the first of three English civil wars begins. Charles seems to be winning at Edge Hill, and oh look, there goes Prince Rupert of the Rhine riding off into the sunset alongside Charles's early victory. Here come the Scots again, bam, Marsden Moor. But Parliament still can't seem to win. They need a new plan, a bold new move, a new model army. Cromwell leads the new model army to victory at Naseby, which to be fair, aren't exactly the facts. Oh god, that is a joke for like five people. The first war is over, Charles I is defeated, he flees north and is captured by the Scots. The Scots turn him over to Parliament for a shipload of money. The war is really finally over. Wait, what the fuck? The Scots made a secret agreement with Charles I? Enter the Engager army, whose ass Cromwell promptly kicked at Preston. The war is truly finally over. Parliament is pridefully purged of its members, and we are left with the rump. But this insignificant portion of the greater whole decides to execute Charles I for treason. 
treason. Charles denies their power to do this and loses his head. Fun fact, the executioner's identity has never been revealed. Charles II tries and fails to retake the three kingdoms. Oliver Cromwell rules over England as Lord Protector. He crushes the Irish, then the Scots, again. Finally, the three English civil wars are over. Of course, this is a gross oversimplification, pretty much ignoring a few good popish plots, 90% of the battles, and the glory of Rupert of the Rhine. But who the hell has time for all of that? So Charles is dead. This man of blood who defiled the land has now cleansed the very land he defiled with his own blood. Tyranny has ended, the king is six inches shorter, and a wart-faced man named Oliver Cromwell is now in charge. Of course, I will dig into this mess on another day as Cromwell or Charles will definitely show up again, but it will suffice to say that the Cromwellian Commonwealth was essentially a military dictatorship that led to increased taxation all passed without fair representation and even a personal period of rule. In essence, Cromwell's England was basically a crownless version of everything that caused the Civil War in the first place. Like all revolutions, the English Revolution, sometimes called the Puritan Revolution, fell short of completeness, and that fuck Cromwell took away Christmas too. After this dick died, came another dick, literally his son Richard, and then it all tumbled down, and fans of the English Civil Wars will certainly get that joke. But eventually, shit got so, well, you know, shitty, that people started thinking back to better times. Stuart times. Times with a king. And public sentiment seemed to lean towards restoring the monarch. General George Monk, the only guy with an army he could afford to pay, marched south from Scotland, which led to the recalling of the Long Parliament, eventually free and fair elections, and finally the restoration of the monarchy. On April 4th, 1660, Charles issued the Declaration of Breda, in which he promised to forgive all those that fought against him and his father, save only the regicides, and respect the authority of Parliament. Parliament promptly said, ah, fuck it, we just want you to come home, and welcomed Charles back to rule. In fact, they outright erased the interregnum and declared that Charles II had reigned as the rightful King of England since his father's death in 1649. Almost immediately, Charles dismissed the New Model Army that defeated him in the Civil War. Now let's see what Charlie II would do with his reclaimed throne. Ruling from 1680 to 1685, historian Elizabeth Dobrul notes, His sparkling wit and robust sense of humor helped smooth over many difficult situations. He was known as a pleasure-seeking monarch, devoted to his mistresses and his dogs. He filled the court with artists, authors, and entertainers who made London society happy and joyful once again after the long years of the parliamentarians' more conservative rule. Restoring the monarch was something as new as English republicanism itself, and as a result, Charles II would have some difficult murky waters to navigate. But here's what I love about Charlie II. His primary goal was always, unsurprisingly, to survive. To keep his crown literally and metaphorically. His reign was one of constant give and take until he could not take it anymore. Historian Tim Harris is one of my favorite scholars on the Stuart drama, specifically Charles II and the Restoration. On the nature and extent of Charles's power, he notes, quote, Many contemporaries criticized Charles for his pretensions to absolutism or for governing in an arbitrary way. In fact, some members of Parliament as early as 1663 suspected him of wanting to, quote, 
change the constitution of the government of his kingdom and to reduce us, England, to the model of France where they have lost all their liberties and are governed by an arbitrary and military power. Don't rip on Louis like that. But again, Harris notes the true reality of Charles's reign was in fact that the major problem he faced was, quote, that he had to rule over a divided people. There was never a great overwhelming consensus among the general population on restoring the monarchy. Few were against it, but they weren't necessarily 100% in favor of it. It was, to most, more of a least-worst-option scenario. Over the course of this episode, we will try to figure out how absolute and successful a ruler Charles II was or was not. I mean, he certainly wasn't Louis, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And he was dealing with a much different situation and a very different state. The question is, was the king absolute? That is, accountable to no human power, and did that mean that he answered to no one? Quite the opposite, actually. Although an absolute king answered to God and God alone, he was subject to certain earthly norms and the laws of man. It was, as Harris puts it, quote, the king was supposed to rule according to the law and would be held accountable by God if he did not. But in reality, Charles was not an absolute monarch, at least not at the beginning of his reign. And he was not near as tyrannical as his opponents made him out to be. Again, I see Charles as a survivor. His primary goal was to see the monarchy outlive him. Now let's move to the first fuck you. What a moment of Charles's triumphant return to England that has always, well, you know, made me chuckle, was his execution of the regicides. I know that seems dark, but just hold on. By regicides, I mean those men that signed the death warrant for his father's execution, and they were people he could honestly not forgive. The fact that those were the only people he really punished for the Civil War shows his moderation and abilities as a leader. He understood from the moment of his return that he had to be political, that his power was given to him, not necessarily by God, but in this case by the people and God, and that it would take a delicate balance of patience, perfidy, and power to reassert royal authority over his dominions. One group that Charles could not forgive were Cromwell and his lackeys. The re-established convention parliament and later the cavalier parliament seemed to be more than fine with this. It seemed justified for all of the chaos of the quote, Puritan Revolution. But wait one fucking second. The whole reason Charles is back is because Cromwell is dead. So what's a girl to do? Well, Charles and Parliament had Cromwell's body disinterred alongside other deceased regicides and conducted a posthumous execution. On execution day, the three long-dead bodies were left hanging through the afternoon, and then Cromwell was taken down and beheaded. Cromwell's head was planted firmly on a spike for the remainder of Charles II's reign, until a storm broke the pike on which it rested. Cromwell's head would find itself in several museums from there, and his head would serve as a morbid tourist attraction at times. It was even stolen for a period of time and hidden in a chimney. Although the authenticity of the head is often debated, it was finally put to rest in 1960 at Cromwell's alma mater in Sussex. In dealing with the men who killed his father, Charles II was able to assert a degree of control and authority, while simultaneously warning any possible dissenters that this was what awaits those who act against the monarchy. In the end, he delivered a beautiful fuck you to the regicides, avenged his father and the crown, and got personal revenge against Oliver Cromwell. Under the advice of his privy chamber, he raised militias to affirm and secure royal power in the early days of his reign. But he would never exert the authority that Louis XIV commanded with his massive standing army. So that begs the question, how did Charles rule? 
Actually, the answer is quite simple, really. He attempted to rule as personal as possible under the direction of a close-knit group of advisors or favorites, similar to the way his father did. Although he worked with Parliament, it was not preferred. Instead, he relied on five men to help him rule. Lord Clifford, the Earl of Arlington, the second Duke of Buckingham, Lord Ashley, and finally the Duke of Lauderdale. When looking at the first letter of their noble titles, this spells out C-A-B-A-L. And that is exactly how Charles ruled, by cabal. A cabal is a secret or private political clique or faction that typically aims to serve their own needs or the needs of one individual or organization. It is sometimes suggested that this was the first time the word was used in this context in English history. This group of men would serve Charles after the Earl of Clarendon's exile, a man who was blamed for just about every failing and bit of natural chaos of Charles's early reign. Charles worked well with the Parliament that brought him back into power, they granted him a modest amount of tonnage and poundage each year to run the state, around 1.2 million pounds, nearly double the amount granted to his father. But most years, the duty would fall short. If we have learned a couple of things from Louis, for Charles to be a successful absolute monarch, he must be able to run his state independent of the will of Parliament. To do this, he was going to need one hell of a military, which required a lot of money. Charles really couldn't obtain either of these, instead choosing to rely on nepotism to further his own agenda. In the first year of his reign, he restored bishops to the House of Lords, and at that moment, all bishops had been royal appointees. He created new lordships to further his position in the House of Lords, 64 in total over the course of his exile and reign. The truth is that Parliament was something Charles tried to manage, not crush, and the same was true of Parliament. Harris notes, quote, The restoration for most people meant not just the return of the king, but also the restoration of Parliaments and the rule of law. Charles's return thus meant, as the Earl of Clarendon put it, quote, we Englishmen have our king again, and our laws again, and our parliaments again. Charles was a people pleaser and a bit of a puppeteer, actually a damn good example of both. His reign brought color and life back to dreary old England. It was a merry time indeed. I mean, this guy brought back Christmas, thank Jesus. But religion, now that was another very messy issue entirely. Religion was one of the most contentious issues of early modern England. And the irrational fear of a plot to restore papal influence in Britain had plagued every Stuart monarch from James I to Charles II, which, yeah, is only three kings, but this fear will continue to be a major issue for Charles II's successor as well. In fact, just about every issue that arose between Charles II and Parliament was over religion, as opposed to the money problems that plagued his father's reign. One quick problem that arose was the issue of the Clarendon Code, named for Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon, who actually disagreed with many of the acts that came to be associated with his name. The Clarendon Code contained four penal laws passed through Parliament in the first five years of Charles's reign, which were very pro-Anglican. These acts actually aimed to root out all those that might once again disrupt the Anglican order of things, and even finally forced the Book of Common Prayer on all of Britain. One act, the Five Mile Act, even forbade non-conforming ministers from going within five miles of towns where they once preached following the Great Ejection of 1662, in which thousands of Puritan ministers were forced out of their positions for not following or adhering to the Book of Common Prayer. This became commonly known as Black Bartholomew's Day in reference to both the date of compliance and another attack on religious freedoms that we will be covering later this season. Now, if Charles's goal was actually to unify his kingdom 
behind the Church of England, then this would have all been seen as a major accomplishment on par with that of Isabella of Castile. But it wasn't. In fact, years later, Charles II attempted to issue a royal declaration of indulgence in 1672. This actually aimed to remove all penal laws of the Clarendon Code, offering instead religious toleration. Although the declaration would protect all religious dissenters, many felt that this reeked of the pulpit, and that Charles was aiming to grant religious toleration to Catholics. They probably weren't wrong. But the staunchly Anglican Parliament resisted, and Charles buckled, probably fearing for his head. He also agreed to the passage of the Test Act, that specifically targeted Catholics by forcing Charles's subjects to denounce Catholic Mass as, quote, superstitious and idolatrous. So in reality, these religious conflicts with Parliament were a massive failure for Charles, who was unable to control his subjects and push through his own religious agenda. But we will see how Charles fares in this front down the road. On another note, Charles's marriage to the young Catherine de Braganza was certainly a smart move internationally, but his marriage to a Catholic Portuguese princess was certainly something that stirred the now-century-old popish plot. But to examine this story, we might as well move to this episode's Moment in the Margins, as we get ready to explore a woman in Charles's life that may be one of our most marginalized and forgotten figures yet, Catherine de Braganza. So this is a big moment for me. I finally get to cover someone that is Portuguese, and a damned good one at that. I would consider her to be one of history's most forgotten or overlooked figures. Catherine de Braganza was the daughter of King João IV of the recently restored Portuguese monarchy. You see, from 1580 to 1640, the Portuguese crown was worn by the Spanish Habsburgs, following one hell of a succession crisis. Throughout this period known as the Iberian Union, Portugal saw its massive colonial empire stripped away by Dutch and English sailors who now saw Portugal as their enemy and ally of Spain. But as heavy taxation and forced conscription during the Thirty Years' War pushed both Portugal and Catalonia into open rebellion, Spain's king, Philip IV, was forced to choose, and he chose Catalonia. Thus, the Braganza Revolution, named for the duke that led it, was a massive success that resulted in Portugal's independence from Spain. Portugal's African, Brazilian, and East Indian colonies actually rose up to expel their Dutch overseers, or captors, depending on your perspective, in the name of the restored Portuguese monarch. Both of our new monarchs looked to solidify their old friendship with a marriage, and Charles II was betrothed to Princess Catherine. Catherine de Braganza was born in 1638, just two years before her father would ascend to the throne. She, like many princesses of her day, would serve her kingdom diplomatically. Her marriage to Charles II would secure Portugal recognition and a military ally against Spain. But what did Catherine bring to the table? Per the marriage alliance, which was actually negotiated first by Charles's father, Charles II would receive both Tangiers and Bombay, as well as a very large dowry of about £360,000. Britain gained access to trade rights in Brazil and the Portuguese East Indies, and Catherine was allowed to freely practice her Catholic faith in England. At court, she was an avid patron of Flemish and Italian art and music, always of Catholic origin. She even got her own fuck-you moments in here and there, once patroning Jacob Husmans, Husmans? who was a rival of an artist that Charles's mistress had patroned, and she always actively avoided French painters that were sponsored by her, I guess we'll call them rivals, that is to say, Charles's many, many mistresses. Court patronage became a way for Catherine to secure independence from her husband and, and his lovers. Thus, she became quite a trendsetter at Charles's court. On the topic of her marriage to Charles, well, it was complicated. Interestingly, when the two met, they had to speak to each other, I believe, in Spanish, as Catherine 
Catherine spoke little English, and Charles spoke little to no Portuguese. He respected her, admired her, even loved her, but she was not the one that held his lustrous affections. That belonged to several other women. I think cabal member George Villers, the second Duke of Buckingham, put it best when he said, quote, A king is supposed to be a father of his people, and Charles certainly was a father to a good many of them. Catherine, a devout Catholic initially and unsurprisingly, clashed with Charles's first mistress in the 1660s, Barbara Villers, also known as Lady Castlemaine, who was a brazen and difficult force within Charles's life and court. She would have five children with Charles, which brings us to Catherine's greatest obstacle, producing an heir. During her reign as queen, Catherine had three miscarriages. She would be the subject of countless popish plots, and ministers even at times urged Charles II to divorce his wife, a request he repeatedly and adamantly refused. There was even a brief moment when it was the plan to have Charles wed one of his mistresses during a particular stillbirth when it seemed Catherine might die. But like Charles, Catherine always survived, even after old Rowley himself passed away. After Charles's death, Catherine would remain queen consort, but that is much different than being queen mother. However, she remained in England following her husband's death. She had little influence over anyone in England, especially after James II went into exile. She would stay in England until 1692, when she finally returned to her native Portugal, which was now under the rule of her brother Pedro II. During her last years in Portugal, she would serve as regent for her brother during two periods of illness in 1701 and 1704. It was as regent that she actively supported the Methuen Treaty to protect Portugal's wine interest, but it was a very pro-English treaty. There is a popular but contested story that Catherine de Berganza was responsible for bringing tea to England. In his diary, Samuel Pepys actually notes the growing consumption of tea in London leading up to her arrival. While she might not have brought the drink to London, it is more commonly believed and accepted that she helped to popularize tea drinking, especially at Charles's court. Catherine died on December 31st, 1705, 25 years after her... Huh, that's embarrassing. 20 years after her husband. As we move out of this round's moment in the margins, I figured we would continue with Charles's foreign policy since Catherine was certainly tied to it, and their marriage, along with other issues, certainly turned England down a very anti-Dutch path. At a glance, one place that on paper Charles II seems to have succeeded in was in foreign policy, but that is only at a glance. During Charles's reign, the so-called Restoration Colonies were established in British North America, as was Prince Rupert's Island in Canada, which, yeah, I guess is also considered part of British North America. But you know what I mean. It was during Charles's reign that the 13 colonies creeped closer to the actual 12 colonies that would rebel in 1776. Pennsylvania, which included Delaware, New York, and technically New Jersey, and the separation of North and South Carolina were all established during Charles II's reign. The Hudson Bay Fur Trading Company was chartered in 1670, which, by the way, is still a retail company to this day. He established the first English trading company in Africa in 1660, which of course means that Charles's chartering of this company is partly responsible for England's more direct involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. From his marriage, he would gain colonial holdings in Tangier and Bombay, losing the former to North Africans shortly after obtaining it. But hey, an English foothold in India? That is something big. But most of his successes seem to be the result of limited action, and even the ones that sound big, like gaining New York, typically came at a cost. And Charles certainly wasn't the warmonger that Cromwell had proven to be. 
Speaking of Cromwell, Charles II actually strengthened some of the policies of the protectorate government and Cromwell himself, specifically the Trade and Navigation Acts first passed in 1651. Initially passed to weaken Dutch influence, Cromwell's version would bring about the First Anglo-Dutch War. But for Charlie, his Navigation Acts, of which there were four, did not counter but instead strengthen the existing law. Many of these policies were not so well received by his colonies, but that is a story already covered here on DGMH. The acts passed in 1660, 63, 70, and 73 demonstrate to us that Charles and his government did aim to regulate the growing English mercantilist network by regulating shipping, whaling, the tobacco trade, and removing outside, especially Dutch, influence in English overseas holdings. Both oddly and unsurprisingly, Charles inherited more than just the legislation of Cromwell in England. Specifically, he embraced a reinvigorated Portuguese alliance that certainly favored England, as well as conflict with the Dutch, which Charles, a Catholic sympathizer, did not object to really at all. Quite the opposite, he saw war with the Dutch as a way to both solidify and legitimize his right to rule. And what a mess that turned out to be. Called the Second Anglo-Dutch War, Charles aimed to quickly defeat the Dutch with his inferior navy in quality, not numbers. Didn't work out so well. This trade war between the Dutch, who were in their quote golden age, and Charles's England fresh out of three civil wars, was quite a little gem. Starting in 1665 and lasting for two and a half years, in this war, Charles aimed to curtail Dutch trade in the English colonies to reinforce the Trade and Navigation Acts, as well as strengthen Britain's mercantilist system. He lost, but what the hell, he did get New Netherlands out of this failure, which would be carved up into New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and modern-day Pennsylvania. In a treaty signed in Breda, the very spot where he declared his intentions to accept the English crown, he signed a losing peace treaty with the Dutch. But Charlie would be back to get his revenge in the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and this time with some help. And guess what? He still fucking lost. Fighting in the Third Anglo-Dutch War would resume in 1672 when Charles signed the not-so-secret Secret Treaty of Dover with King Louis XIV. The treaty promised Charles an annual pension of around £230 in return for English naval and military aid in a war against the Dutch. Added plot twist, Charles had to promise to eventually, at some undetermined date in the future, convert to Catholicism. So all of that irrational popish plot shit wasn't so irrational after all. And so, England entered its third Anglo-Dutch war, the second for Charlie, this time with Louis's massive state at his side. On April 6th, Louis declared war on the Dutch, beginning his Franco-Dutch war. And the following day, Charles declared war on the Dutch as well, beginning the third Anglo-Dutch war. Although the war went well for Charles at first, he did not have the funds to continue a prolonged war effort. And he was forced to do the one thing that never went very well for a Stuart call a parliament. Immediately, the Protestant parliament, which had now become aware of Charlie's dirty little secret with Louis XIV, put pressure on Charles to sue for peace with the Dutch, which he did in 1674. His grand plan backfired when New Amsterdam was actually temporarily recaptured and the two powers signed the Treaty of Westminster. Charles would continue to support Louis with troops under the leadership of his bastard son, James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth. Beyond this, Charles continued to get paid by Louis XIV and retain New York City in the end, essentially renewing the Treaty of Breda, gotta love the classic return to status quo. All in all, Charles had some superficial foreign policy successes, but his gains would outlive him. The Dutch Golden Age was about to crash and fucking burn. However, that is probably best left for another day. Charlie's foreign policy legacy was cemented in the Americas with Charleston, South Carolina, originally called Charlestown, named for him. 
Queensboro, New York was supposedly named in honor of his wife Catherine, and Kings County, which houses Brooklyn, was supposedly named for Charles himself. Just a glance at his colonial footprint, he was certainly not a foreign policy mastermind, but he was, again, a survivor in the larger colonial race. In fact, I wouldn't consider it too great of a leap to suggest that merry old Charles II, at the very least, laid the foundations for England's future global successes. But can one be too merry? It is said that during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, as the Dutch fleet sailed up the Thames toward London, eventually burning the English fleet, Charles unknowingly continued to party hard elsewhere. But that was hardly the worst occurrence of Charles's reign. The Second Dutch War ended in 64, and the following year or so would really fucking suck for Charles. Well, as we wrap up this episode, let's see what else old Rowley had to deal with. So picture this. You just come out of a losing year, embarrassingly getting your ass handed to you by the Dutch. What could possibly be worse? Bring out your dead, here comes the plague. From 1665 to 1666, the Great London Plague raged. In these years, which are beautifully captured by the Plague Diary of Samuel Pepys, the most over-examined document of the Great Plague of 2020, which I have decided not to dive into, this plague swiftly swept through London, taking with it around 100,000 people, a quarter of the city's population. As always, the rich left the city and survived, the poor stayed and died, and Charles moved his entire court to Oxford until February of 1666 when it was deemed safe enough for him to return. I'm sure that for Charles II, it felt like the whole kingdom was back on the fast track to crash and burn, but at least things couldn't possibly get any worse. Oh, what the hell, let's just burn the whole fucking capital to the ground. Well, actually, it was only about three quarters of London that burned to the ground in the Great London Fire of 1666, the Devil's Year. But some historians have pointed to the fact that this forced medieval London to embrace a more modern age. That Charles's London was in fact a dynamic one of change. But Charles rose to greatness in this moment as well, as he quote, personally organized and encouraged firefighting efforts alongside his brother and prompted the immediate rebuilding of the city under the direction of the architect Christopher Wren. Wren was actually responsible for redesigning St. Paul's Cathedral. Yes, the St. Paul's that just wouldn't fall in Churchill's story. Well, it certainly did in Charlie's. But the modern church has its roots in Charles II's reign. Sort of a from-the-ashes story. But at least it couldn't possibly get any fucking worse than a great fire. Yeah, that's pretty much true this time. The fire damaged most of the city, including more than 80 churches and over 13,000 homes. But very few actually perished in the fire. John Evelyn noted in his diary that rivaled that of Samuel Pepys, all the sky was a fiery aspect, like the top of a burning oven, and the light seen above 40 miles round for many nights. God grant mine eyes may never behold the like, who now saw above 10,000 homes all in flame, the noise and crackling and thunder of people, the fall of towers, houses, and churches, was like a hideous storm. Naturally, everyone in London believed that this was God punishing them for something. Luckily for Charles, the good people of London felt that they were being punished for the madness of the 1640s and 50s, not his return. In the 1670s, however, Charles made one of his most lasting impacts by chartering the Royal Observatory on June 22, 1675. Today, the observatory is located in Greenwich, operating mainly as a museum, but it continued to operate as a scientific institution until the 1990s. In all this, Charles again survived. But would he ever win? 
Actually, yes. Let's move to the second fuck you of Charles II's reign, when he finally did the inevitable and dissolved Parliament, choosing to rule absolute. And surprise, this issue was all brought about by religion. In one of his grandest displays of power, Charles II finally stood up to the Parliament that gave him back his throne. He had, like his father, conceded to Parliament until the time when he could no more. During the famous exclusion crisis in which Parliament attempted to deny Charles's brother James the right to inherit the throne because he was an open Catholic, Charles outright refused to allow the exclusion bill to become law. This actually begot two distinct political parties that would dominate British government for centuries, the Tories who supported strong monarchy and tradition, and the Whigs who supported the supremacy of Parliament. Interestingly, both terms were initially meant to be derogatory, and ironically both were slights at the expense of the Irish and the Scots. So the exclusion crisis is a drawn-out political mess that resulted in the thing that we have all been waiting for, Charles to seize the reins of government. From 1680 onward, Charles ruled without Parliament, but one lingering effect of this crisis was the codification of habeas corpus law, which we talked about in the Lincoln Saga. Of course, I should note that the king was only able to rule without Parliament because King Louis XIV began to provide him with greater financial support. It's a little more complicated than that, but we will have to leave it there. In the last five years of his reign, to my great disappointment, Charles didn't do much but he did rule absolute. He successfully suppressed the political opposition by manipulating courts to the point where the Whigs began to refer to his Louis-like style of government as, quote, slavery. But he ruled nonetheless. For five years, Charles did what no other Stuart managed to do. He ruled without Parliament until his death just in time to deliver the final fuck you. From February 2nd to February 6th, 1865, as Charles II lied dying, he called for his brother James and his wife Catherine to his side. He pleaded with his brother to care for his beloved mistress at the time, Nell Gwen, saying, quote, let not poor Nelly starve. He spoke kindly of his wife, seeming to regret not treating her with greater respect. By the way, Catherine didn't exactly rush to Charles's side in his final days. In one conversation, Charles actually remarked, Alas, poor woman, in reference to Catherine, she asked me for my pardon. I beg hers with all my heart. But it was in these final days that he delivered the ultimate fuck you to his kingdom, a kingdom that had killed his father, when he proved once and for all that the fears of the most radical Protestants in England were actually true. On his deathbed, King Charles II, head of the Church of England, willingly and happily converted to Roman Catholicism. And that, my dear listeners, is what makes him so fucking great. It was as historian Paul Menard puts it in The Power of Kings, quote, They could not, however, restrain old Rowley from taking his last and best revenge on all of his Protestant subjects when he became a Roman Catholic on his deathbed. His final fuck you was truly his most brilliant. Tim Harris, however, captures the true beauty of the scene, saying, quote, Perhaps the most remarkable thing about this scene, however, but something that is rarely commented upon, is where it took place, the king's bedchamber in the royal palace of Whitehall. He continues, quote, Charles II's father had his head severed from his body on a specially erected scaffold outside his own banqueting house. Charles II's brother and successor was forced to flee his realms after less than four years on the throne, and was to end his days in exile. Harris concludes, quote, For the merry monarch to have died in his bed, still as reigning king of England, Scotland, and Ireland, was no mean achievement. Charles II and his father and brother illustrate to us the listener, the learner, the teacher, the importance of public opinion, something Charles II seemed to genuinely understand. Well, that's all I've got. Three great fuck yous, two Habsburg jokes, and not nearly enough beavers. Let's move to the scale of greatness. First, the drink, a Long Island. Did you figure out why? 
Charles's reign gave us New York City out of the captured New Amsterdam and popular tea drinking out of his marriage to Catherine de Verganza. And that whole Pepsi thing was a shout out to Samuel Pips. Peeps. Samuel Peeps. But I am pretty sure I raided a Long Island on a different episode. Washington, I believe. So today I am rating Firefly Sweet Tea Vodka, the vodka I used in my Long Island iced tea. And it is pretty good. You know, once in college, I thought it would be fun to mix straight lemonade vodka with straight iced tea vodka to make one hell of an Arnie Palmer, and it was pretty good from what I remember. But I don't remember very much. Firefly iced tea vodka out of Charleston, South Carolina, like most iced tea vodkas, tastes great, but I did kind of lose it in the Long Island. But don't worry, I was fine with having a glass straight, too. Five points for taste. Price is modest. It comes in at around $18 to $20, depending on where you shop. There are cheaper ones out there, though, that are just as good. Four points for price. Not really a go-to for me. If I were to buy a bottle again, I would go for a cheaper one. That's kind of my opinion on all flavored vodkas, though. So I am only giving this three points for being good enough to return to, but it's not really something that I'm going to keep on my shopping list. I love Long Island's, liked the tea vodka, didn't love paying for it, though. But maybe my tune will change come summertime. We shall see. Firefly Ice Tea Vodka leaves the show with 12 out of 18 points and 4 crowns. If you have never tried it, then you definitely should. On to our merry monarch and great mind for this episode. Charles was a modest but astute leader. He partied a bit too hard and certainly could not lead his nation through a war to save his life. He rebounded nicely from the Great Fire of London, and on the issue of religion, well, he won out in the end with his victory in the Exclusion Crisis. Despite some massive failures as a leader, we cannot forget that he survived, led, and died in his bed. He even achieved absolute power, even if it required a little help. Three points for being a decent leader in an extremely challenging time. It sounds sad to say that one of Charles II's greatest accomplishments was merely surviving, but it fucking was. This requires some perspective. His predecessor lost his head after two civil wars. His successor lost his throne after one glorious revolution. Charles managed to keep his crown firmly attached to his body. Died a respected, well-liked figure. In essence, he survived being an English monarch in the most tumultuous time in English history. He failed at war, but in the end won the battle with Parliament and ran his state personally for the last five years of his life. I'm not going to say that he truly accomplished greatness, but he was quite the entertaining figure. But first for accomplishments, I'm going to give Charles four points for doing what his predecessor and successor could not do. Rule absolutely and still die in his bed. And in terms of entertainment, well, his bed was certainly a source of that. You can't research someone called the Merry Monarch without having some fun. He is actually way more fun than I had time to dive into with all his mistresses and more. He followed a mess and a mess followed him, but he kept things pretty lively during his personal kingship and always delivered the best forms of vengeance. Six points for entertaining me for the past 10 years. Oh shit, wait a second, it's been 12 years since I started college and first discovered the Merry Monarch. And believe it or not, I really don't think he was a piece of shit. He was a dog, a terrible husband, and a selfish party boy. But we didn't knock Louis for it, we didn't knock Catherine the Great for it, so we won't be knocking Charlie the Merry for it either. I hate how it impacted Catherine, his wife, I really do feel for her. But she didn't let old Rowley get her down. 
As far as I can tell, Charles really wasn't responsible for any unwarranted evil doings, save trying to be an absolute monarch and squash the freedoms of his rivals. I don't know, call me crazy, but I don't think he deserves to lose any POS points. So Charles II leaves the show with a modest 13 out of 18 points and narrowly escapes the show with 5 crowns. For more on King Charles II, I will say that my go-to source has always been Tim Harris, especially his book, Restoration. For a quick read on the whole Stuart era, Stuart England, A Very Short Introduction is always great, Catherine is poorly covered in history save only by Charles Carlton in his book, Royal Mistresses. Other historians have started to examine her more, but nothing great that I have seen yet. In Carlton's book, he beautifully examines the nature of court life and coexistence between mistresses, the king, and queen. And if you're looking for a light, super fun read on royal scandal and love affairs, there is always Michael Fuquar's Behind the Palace Doors. Well, that's it. If you enjoy Drinks with Great Minds in History, then follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. There you can get a round of DGMH daily. If you love the show and want access to even more content, then be sure to visit the DGMH Patreon page with content available to all supporters from the $1 level and and up. Please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and as always, thanks for listening. Well, let's wrap this up. Charles's reign came to a natural end in 1685. He ruled for 25 years. His brother would inherit the throne, but not without resistance by those distrusting Protestants and even Charles's bastard John Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, son of his mistress Lucy Walters, would lead a rebellion against James. That rebellion, however, would be suppressed and Monmouth would lose his head. James II would reign for just three chaotic years before old sentiments of the Civil War era stirred up the old Protestant wind that swept James up in the Glorious Revolution and carried his daughter Mary and Charlie's old frenemy William of Orange swiftly to the English throne. From there, England would get its Bill of Rights, but James II and his successors would try several times to reclaim the throne for the next 60 years. The most famous of these moments being, of course, the Jacobite Rising of 1745, led by good old Bonnie Prince Charlie. Charles II did what his father and brother just couldn't. He survived. He kept his throne to the very end of his life. He brought back color and life to a dreary Christmasless England. He ruled with moderation and strength. He never seemed to fully lose, but never really reached the absolute top. His reign is said to have been a merry one, and I would say one of dynamic change and plenty of great fuck you moments. Whether it be plagues, fires, or popery, despite everything, old Raleigh survived. Cheers!